Here's the scene. It's 2019, and we're in Atlanta at the U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials. Running in the race is Molly Seidel. Though she's a professional runner and former NCAA champion, this is her first ever marathon. If she wants to make the Olympic team heading to Tokyo, she'll have to crack the top three. I went into it with the mentality of like, I don't care what place I come out. I just want to like take somebody's lunch money today. And yet, 19 miles into the race, Molly is tucked into the huddle of leading runners. When they head up a hill, she and one other runner start breaking away from the pack. I felt good or as good as you can at mile 19 of your first marathon. And everybody else slowed down on the hill. And I just kept going the same pace because I didn't want to slow down. And then when I realized I was out ahead, it was like, shit, 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 shit. Like, what are you doing? It was just like that moment of like, this opportunity has presented itself. Don't slow down, just go. Because the world has handed you this right now and you get very few great opportunities. If you go back right now, you've already lost. Molly would finish second on that day with a time of two hours, 27 minutes and 31 seconds. For those doing the math at home, that's an average mile pace of five minutes and 37 seconds. She'd earned her spot to Tokyo. Naturally, ahead of her Olympic race in a few weeks, I was eager to talk to Molly about that incredible performance, of course, but also about distance running more generally, because I love running and because I find it to be such a good exercise in learning how to be uncomfortable. That's especially true when you're running 26 consecutive five and a half minute miles like Molly. As she says, It's just learning to stay mentally strong when it just sucks. So I wanted to ask Molly and her coach John Green about the lessons they've learned from training at that place of peak discomfort. Turns out they have quite a few. I'm Clay Skipper, and this is Smarter, Better, Faster, Stronger. GQ podcast that goes inside the minds of some of the world's top Olympians and their coaches, trainers, and psychologists. I'm hoping to figure out how, on a stage where everyone's at their physical peak, the world's top athletes get a mental edge. Today's guest is Molly Seidel, an Olympic marathoner who says she has framed her days around running since she was 10 years old. Running is my true love. I've loved it since I was 10 years old. I love it just as much now. It's never felt like a sacrifice for me to have to be like, okay, I have to frame my days around like when I'm going to get in my training, when I'm going to do this, because it's always just been like one of those things that it's like a given in my life of like, okay, just going to run today and then I'll fit everything around there. It just gives my day structure. Not to be too cheesy, I feel like running is Mm -hmm. how I make sense of the world and like how I process things really well like especially if I'm going through like emotional things running is the time when I can like process that didn't you run a six minute mile in fifth grade which is (laughs) remarkable (laughs) like I mean was it hard yeah I think it was like even like thinking back it's definitely like hard like you're going but I think the mentality was it's the same of wanting to push if you saw a photo of me running when I was in like fifth grade or middle school like I didn't have great form I didn't look like a runner quote unquote I'm not like the long, lanky, lean, traditional runner. But I feel like I have always had that ability to like push. And I think that's what ultimately made me a great runner when I was younger is that ability to push a little bit harder than maybe the people around me. And I've found the events that support my style of running. Like I'm never going to be an elite 5k runner, but I can go forever. 
That ability to push herself harder than the people around her helped Molly become a national champion runner at Notre Dame. Back then, she was running much shorter distances, but in the years after college, once she started running professionally, she began struggling with injuries. The training for those shorter distances, which involves running at a higher intensity pace, was breaking her body down. She realized she might be better suited for the lower intensity, but higher mileage of marathon training, a conclusion she came to with the help of her coach, John Green. kind of looked at what her training was and it was that higher intensity and faster paces that were breaking her body down and so by eliminating that and just doing a lot of like slow easy stuff quote unquote easy that's what got her healthy and we just started experimenting and to be honest with you early on in the first like few weeks she was like I love mileage I can handle mileage mileage never gave me a problem and so that's what I listened to I was like okay if you can handle mileage I'll give you all the miles basically it was just to be healthy and consistent that was the biggest thing she had struggled with injury for a number of years and so that was all we were trying to do is just get time on feet and miles down basically like marathon pace for her is just most of the time like super easy and she can recover really quickly off of it. And so that's kind of how we found the marathon and the half. And we were just like, okay, let's do this. It's not super high intensity. It'll kind of build our aerobic base. As part of that training, Molly ran a half marathon in San Antonio in December of 2019. She won, running at a pace of 5 minutes, 22 seconds per mile. That automatically qualified her for the Olympic trials. And though that was never in the cards, Molly says she, with the help of John, made the snap decision to run it. Because why not? At the time, the thought of me running the trials was like objectively crazy. Like literally deciding to run the trials happened at a party that we were at that my sister and I were just talking and talking with my coach. And we're like, why the hell not run the trials? Like, sure. And everyone's like, people were either like, this is the dumbest idea or like, why the hell not? Because objectively, it was crazy. At that time, I had barely three months of healthy running under my belt. John had become my coach in the fall. We had both left the pro team that we were on that fall. So I was still like not knowing what the hell I was going to do with my life. I had so many bone fractures and like there was no reason to think that like I could even get to the line healthy for this race. But we were like, it only happens every four years. I seem to like the training and respond pretty well to it. Why not just try it out? It was very much a like for shits and giggles thing. Like this will be a cool experience to have. But we had no reason to think that it would be anything more than just, oh, yeah, Molly's running her first marathon. How fun. There's going to be 500 other people there. It'll be cool. Here's John on what he remembers about the decision to run the trials. It is the trials. It's a really special race. And it only comes around once every four years or three years right now. And so <laughs> it's just one of those things where it was hard to say no to. And I think we were just excited to do the trials and like have a good time. And then the fitness started coming around. And it was like, oh, well, this is what the field looks like. And I think we have a pretty good shot at the field. So... And that's how Molly and I work is a little bit off the cuff and finding things that work. And I'm not afraid to change the schedule around completely if it means putting Molly in a better situation, essentially. I mean, you, what kind of chance did you guys think that she had heading into the to the trials? We talked the night before and in looking at the field, I actually thought she was going to be anywhere from third to 12th, depending on the day and stuff like that. Obviously, I was a little off, but it was funny afterwards we had talked about it and she was like, oh, I thought I was going to be in like the high teens, maybe low 20s. Molly says she thinks that the lack of expectation actually helped. Everybody puts everything on the Olympics to the degree that it's like people go into these races with the mentality of like, if I'm not top three, it's not even worth it for me to be there. Whereas 
I was going into the marathon trials with the mentality of like, I'm just so pumped that I'm on the line. I'm healthy. I'm finally excited about what I'm doing. My whole family's here to watch. I went into it with the mentality of like, I don't care what place I come out. I just want to like take somebody's lunch money today. And I was thinking like, man, it would be awesome if I could sneak my way into the top 10 because some of the people drop out when they realize they're not going to be top three. And then it just happened that a lot of people dropped out. And then, yeah, with 19 to go, I'm like, wait, where is everybody? And all of a sudden I'm leading the race and it's like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And so at mile 19 in the Olympic trials, when you're like, oh, I'm up here with the leaders and then you take off, what are you thinking in that moment? Mm-hmm. That sort of like put it all out there and go. From the outside, it looked like I was making this big move and surging and then Alphine yeah. went with me and then we went off together. In the moment, it was literally just, we were going up a hill. I was running a pace that I wanted to run. I felt good or as good as you can at mile 19 of your first marathon. And everybody else slowed down on the hill. And I just kept going the same pace because I didn't want to slow down. And then when I realized I was out ahead, it was like, shit, 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 shit. Like, what are you doing? I could have played it safe and gone back to the rest of the team and just saw how it was going to shake out. Or it was just like that moment of like, this opportunity has presented itself. Don't slow down. Just go. The world has handed you this right now. And you get very few great opportunities. If you go back right now, you've already lost. And so how did finishing second then affect your confidence? It changed my confidence in the way of before the Olympic trials. And I still fall into this trap of like constantly comparing what I'm doing to other pros, especially now when you can see what everybody's doing and everybody loves to post their workouts on Instagram and whatnot. And I was always looking for that thing of like, what am I going to do so that I can be like other people so I can be great? I see all these other people being great. How can I emulate them? How can I copy them so that I can be great? Because inherently what I'm doing is lesser than what these other people are doing. And I think the trials was validation of like, you know what, the way that you're doing things, it works. Have confidence in that. And like, maybe it's unconventional. Like my training was very different than what the other women were doing because I simply couldn't handle that amount of volume and workouts yet. But having confidence of like, okay, like you aren't necessarily the quote unquote typical marathoner, but that's okay. You can have confidence in what you're doing because there's something special here. When Molly and I spoke in June, she was preparing for Tokyo by running two times a day, every day, for a total of about 125 miles a week. So that comes out to generally like 16 or 17 miles a day and then a long run on the weekends of around anywhere from 20 to 24 miles. I'll usually do my longer run in the morning. Most easy runs are around 90 minutes. So that's anywhere, depending on how good I'm feeling, anywhere from like 11 to 13 miles. And then I'll generally do like four to six in the afternoon. So it does vary a lot. And then like workouts, especially now as we get further into the build, the workouts get a lot longer. So they'll get from like up into like the 15 to 18 mile range. Wow. And what tempo are you usually doing those runs? Easy runs are actually really slow. I think it surprises a lot of people to learn that when I run easy, it's to make sure that my body's recovering enough for the hard workout. So like I'm never afraid to run eight minute pace, 830 pace, even slower or so to really recover, especially on my doubles. I'll straight up run like nine minute pace. For workouts, we're trying to do a lot of stuff in threshold range, which for me right now at altitude is around 520, lower down around like 515, but it can ebb up to like 525. 
So it really varies depending on what we're doing. And when you say threshold, is that like the upper limit of what you can do or no? Is that mean something different? Threshold stands for lactate threshold, and that is pretty close to like what your marathon pace is. And that's the pace at which your body can no longer convert lactate within your system. So for like tempo or threshold, how I try to explain it to people is you need to feel like a pot of water on the stove that's just about to start boiling over. You're not boiling over yet, but you're like right on that level and you just hold it there right on that line. I think about that a lot. I mean, I don't run, obviously, what you're running. But when I run, I'm always thinking about trying to stay exactly at that point in some ways of not tipping over into being completely out of breath. But I find it very easy to get into a place of comfort. And like, it's a lot of work to Mm -hmm. stay conscious of like, oh, you need to be at the upper echelon of your threshold. It's really mentally draining. And that's what I think is the part that regular runners don't quite understand that can be the biggest breakthrough for people is like, being able to just make peace with being uncomfortable and hold that because that I've found is like key for the marathon is just to be able to like almost go to that Zen place where you're like at peace with the knowledge that you're going to be really uncomfortable for a really long period of time and not have much else to focus on other than that. And it's just being able to be like, okay, I'm just going to like dig into the pain and Mm. just be okay with this. Yeah. This is so interesting because you said something on Emily Abate's hurdle podcast that struck me. You said a lot of people look at professional runners and I definitely am one of these people and they think, oh, they're in such good shape that this is no longer uncomfortable for them. And you were like, no, actually being a professional just means being able to sustain that discomfort for longer. Yeah, that literally is the thing. It's like the old cliche of it doesn't get easier, you just get faster. It is so true. Like being able to see how my mentality has progressed from high school to college to pros, more than anything, it's just been mentally developing and growing and being able to handle discomfort for longer. Because at the end of the day, is really what it's about is like you have these physical capabilities, but a lot of times the biggest thing holding an athlete back is their own brain saying like, oh, no, you're going to the danger zone. You need to pull back. And a lot of what training is, I've found it's less about going and running a certain pace to be able to like train your body for that pace. It's teaching your brain to be okay with running these paces and like teaching your brain. It's almost like, I didn't die this time, so it's going to be okay next time. And it's like, okay, I know I can run 13 miles at this pace. And even though it hurts like hell, I know I can do it. So now my brain is like, okay, this is the new set point. So I found that's what it is. It's just learning to stay mentally strong when it just sucks. You ran 5Ks and 10Ks at Notre Dame. And that is obviously low mileage at, not low mileage, but lower mileage at a high intensity. Marathon's obviously high intensity, but it's going to be less intense because you're at a higher mileage. How do you compare the sort of discomforts of those two races? In terms of discomfort, it's all different. A 5K is so just feeling wise, so different from a marathon. That feeling of like in a marathon where you're a frog in a pot of water that's being brought up to a boil, the 5K is just like throwing that frog in a pot of like already boiling (laughs) water. It's just like Uh so hard, but it's much shorter. And so it's like a little bit easier to process. You're like, I'm just full sending for the next 15 minutes. Whereas like the marathon, you have to have that patience at the beginning. And it is that slow, just like wearing down of your body. What are some of the ways that you are able to sort of grow that mental strength? Or what are some of the things that allow you to hold that discomfort for longer now than say four years ago or eight years ago? I think one of the things is 
shifting the mentality of like, it doesn't have to be perfect every time, but you have to finish every time. People would be shocked to learn at the number of workouts where I want to drop out early or like don't want to finish the workout. There are so many times where like halfway through, you're just like, oh my God, I have another like six miles to go at this pace. And this is just going to hurt. Why the hell am I doing this? And it's just saying like, okay, it doesn't have to be great. It doesn't have to be a hundred percent, but you do have to finish and you have to stay in it. And just learning to like, kind of make peace with that of just like, okay, you don't quit. You stay in it no matter how hard it gets. And then I'll use music strategically as a way to like motivate myself and get myself going. We can't listen to music while we're racing. So I try not to rely on it too much because a lot of the marathon is just like learning to be bored while you're hurting for a long period of time. A pro marathon is vastly boring for the majority of the race. Do you have ways of sort of training your boredom outside of the run? I try to meditate. I'm trying to take some time each day to like shut down. One, mm-hmm. it just helps my mental state overall. But being able to like try and practice getting into that like focused awareness or like I guess like focused disassociation almost. I guess people would refer to it as flow state of just like being in the moment. And I find if I try to practice that outside of running, it does help because my best races are races where I feel like I'm able to get into that state of just, you're just letting your body do what it knows how to Mm. do and you're not overthinking it or you're not thinking, oh God, I still have so many miles to run. It's just kind of like, okay, we're just in this mile right now. We're running. I very much felt like I had that during the Olympic trials more so than probably any other time in my life. Well, first of all, I'm curious, does mindfulness meditation, do you find that helps your running? It helps in the sense of being able to like reflect and process. Not that running can't be like regenerative, but it is by its nature an active thing. Like when you're running and in a flow state, it's a very focused, controlled kind of thing. Whereas I feel like when you're meditating, sitting still, it is that like calming your nervous system down and getting back to like that base level and being able to focus in a related but a different way. Strain is strain, regardless of if it's mental or physical, and you need to take that time to recharge. Say I'm at home and I'm like in my bed or whatnot, and I'm like, I'm resting my legs and recharging, but I'm just on my phone flipping through Instagram the whole time. My brain is still engaged. I'm not giving my brain a mental break. So then when I get to my second run in the afternoon, I'm totally mentally drained. So trying to find time to be like, I need to give my brain the same kind of like mental recharge that I'm giving my legs right now. I go over to Ethiopia every so often. I do work with the foundation there, but I also train in the town of Bakoji. And Ethiopians are pro-level resters. Like they are so good at resting in between runs. I was mystified by like in between their runs, they'll run two or three times a day, but it's like, get your legs up and you're not like, you're not watching TV. You're not on your phone. You're just like mentally recharging because I think they have that appreciation of like, you need to have that mental energy to go into the next hard run. And I don't think we have enough of an appreciation of that over here. And it's like, that's why we get our asses kicked by the Ethiopians and the Kenyans all the time. It's just because like, I think they have this awareness of you need to rest and recharge. Not surprisingly, John shares Molly's appreciation for rest and recovery and works it into programs he creates for Molly and the other runners he now coaches. How I frame it to people is that you have your physical tank, like gas tank, and then you have your mental gas tank. If I give you a ton of mileage, what's going to happen is your body's going to break down and maybe you get a stress fracture or you have Achilles tendonitis, things like that. That's the body breaking down. 
once we get past that and we're at the point where like we're doing consistent mileage, sometimes what you can do is if I start giving you really hard workouts over and over again, then you're starting to get that like, I have to hype myself up to do this workout in order to like get it done and stuff like that. And that drains the mental tank. Same thing with answering a ton of emails. If you just only thing you had to do every day was answer like a ton of emails, you'd be like, this sucks. I'm draining my mental tank. And then you'd be like, I need to take days off in order to do that. It's the same thing with running. Once you get someone to, to say the mileage you want, you talk about the physical tank. Once you get them to a point where they're pretty good, they're pretty resilient physically, will you change the workouts to train the, the mental resiliency too, or are they working in concert? I'm almost balancing the mental side of things. One woman I coach, she struggles with pace change. So the mental side of that is we'll go out and we'll do pace change workouts. So she'll just be alternating pace, like almost constantly through the workout and she hates it but she knows it's good for her kind of thing. And so that's the thing is like, you say something is a weakness and that's something that I pick up on. It's okay, well, how do we basically face our phobia about it without full on exposing ourselves to her? And so that's kind of how I work the mental side of things. And so when you're putting that person through that workout, would you be like, all right, we're gonna run X time and then for the next 30 seconds, we're gonna run Y time. Is that how it sort of works? Yeah. So one of the workouts, and I stole this from my coach and uh, at Georgetown was, so we'll do a 1200 meter repeat. So it's three laps of the track. And so there'll be a fast quarter in there, like a fast lap, and then there'll be two easier laps. And that fast lap will rotate through it. So we maybe we'll go 75, 75, 68. And then the next one will be 75, 68, 75, and then 68, 75, 75. Those are seconds, right? Those are seconds per quarter mile. And so they start at 75s is like five minute pace. And so it's a little bit faster on one side and then slower on the other. And that's just working on pace change at the end of the day. And she's learning about her body during it. John says he does a workout with Molly that involves her running 16 kilometers, about nine and a half miles, where each kilometer is run at a different pace. So the first one will be, let's say, in 325 for the first kilometer. The second kilometer will be 335. And then it's that fluctuation back and forth. And eventually what the body wants to do, and just because what's mentally easier, is come to the middle of just run 330Ks. But it's that switching that it's a mental task as well to that. And she'll go, she'll run a little bit slower than marathon pace and then a little bit faster than marathon pace. And it teaches her to redline and understand where her body's at. And so being like, okay, I can push through this and then I can relax. It also helps the body physically clear out the lactic acid in the muscles. How do you think of that breakdown of how much of it is physical and how much of is mental? It's all mental. I know it's like cliche to say, but it's it, 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 re- like it really is. If you're mentally exhausted going into a race, you're not going to perform well at the end of the day. I would rather have Molly mentally super healthy going into a race. Even if she, if she was injured for two weeks going into a race and it meant she was mentally healthy, I'd go for it. Yeah. Because at the end of the day as well, like it is just a sport. It is just running. Like <laughs> we run around in circles for a living. We're not changing the world by any means. And so yeah, being mentally healthy is what's most important. Do you guys talk about like self-talk at all? Yeah, we talk about it and just having having a plan when everybody's thoughts go negative at some point, especially when you're in a ton of pain in a race. Self-talk is great when you have a plan for it. If you don't plan and expect to hurt and expect negative thoughts to come in and you have no plan for it, that's when self-talk, I feel like, can go awry or isn't as effective. And so, yeah, we practice being like, hey, listen, let's just focus on when things get difficult, what are we going to say to ourselves, essentially. Molly says her self-talk now is far different than it was when she was at Notre Dame. My self-talk is very different now than when I was in college. I just mentally struggled 
so much, especially in college and especially like 2016, looking at the person that I was going into those trials when I didn't even make it to the line because I was just, I was physically and mentally just demolished. I think I put less pressure on things now and I approach the sport a little bit more like it's not this all or nothing approach that I had before because the all or nothing approach almost killed me. And it was like nothing else mattered in the world other than running. And now for me, at least like running is the focus of my life, but realizing that there's a world outside of running. I don't mean to ask such a heavy question. I mean, I know you've talked very bravely about your struggles with eating disorders and depression. I mean, did it literally almost kill you? Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I had to go into like residential treatment and I had to like really take a hard look at my life and figure out because like that was the conversation. I was just breaking bones left and right. It was just a really dark place. And I think ultimately, like, I'm very grateful that especially my therapist, he like, he put it pretty plainly in terms that like, of what I could understand at that time, because I was still like, I wasn't even focusing on, oh, man, this might ruin like my life life. I could only think of like, oh, I want to like get back to running. I want to get back to competing in a couple of weeks. He was like, no, you got to like slow down and focus on what's going on right now. Because if you don't get this shit sorted out, like you will never run again. And that was with where my mind was at that time. It was just like, oh, like that's what broke through to me. And now it's like realizing like, holy shit, like there was so much other, like (laughs) so many other bigger things. But at that time, that's what got through of like, oh, this thing you love most in the world. If you don't sort your shit out right now, you're never going to do that again. So what has this ability to increase your threshold for discomfort in running? Has that helped with things outside of running, like in life in general? Yes and no. It's a double-edged sword. I have a very high pain tolerance, but to the degree that it has come back to bite me in a lot of areas, like I have broken a lot of bones in my life. I've broken my pelvis twice. I've broken my sacrum multiple times. And it's because I have a very high pain tolerance, because I've gotten very used to running through a lot of pain, it can sometimes be hard to separate discomfort, which is what you feel in a race. Like at the end of the day, it's discomfort. It's not like pain, pain from like physical broken bone pain. In 2017 to 2018, my first year as a pro, I was actually running on a broken pelvis for a year. And I didn't realize it because I thought that was a normal amount of pain to be having to run through. And then I went and get an MRI and the doctor was like, holy shit, did you fall off a building? And I said, no, I have just been running professionally. And they're like, you probably shouldn't do that. And I'm like, I don't care. But yeah, so it's been trying to be a little bit smarter and a little bit more aware. When I tell my coach something is hurting, he knows that's like serious because he knows how high my pain tolerance is. He knows if I'm telling him something, it's like, oh, wow, that's something. (laughs) And now here's John talking about Molly's pain tolerance. I mean, (laughs) she just like shuts off her brain. I swear to God, she has the highest pain tolerance. Like if somebody, if Molly says she's in like a five for pain, that's like a 12 for a normal person. I mean, she, when she had her hip issue, she like ran on a broken hip. That is just unbelievably excruciating. And she's just like, yeah, it hurts a little. I can push through it. And so that's obviously she's tough as nails, but like her pain tolerance is just out of this world. And and then also unbelievably talented aerobically. She's an aerobic machine. And so when you put those things together, that's where you end up with just a really good runner. Molly's also a really good runner because she just loves to run, in part because of how it helps her mental health. 
She deals with OCD and says that she often feels like running is a way for her body to catch up with her brain. I've said it before on some interviews that my brain a lot of times feels like it's going a million miles an hour. I deal with OCD. It's just like you kind of feel like there's a TV at level 10 volume in the back of your head at all times. And when I'm running, it's the only time that I feel like my brain and my body sync up. And I think that's why I love it. It is that flow state of being able to sync this action that you're doing with the process of your brain and feel like your brain fits inside of the vessel of your body. Finally, I love skiing. I love biking. I love being outside and doing stuff, but nothing does it quite like running for me. I never want to compare experiences because I feel like it's always very reductive, but I, I struggle a lot with obsessive rumination where I just cannot stop thinking about things. If I'm trying to write something and I just can't figure it out and I can't stop thinking about it, sometimes the only thing that gets it moving for me is to go on a run. And I do think there's something clarifying about it. I also feel like running just gives me a lot of perspective on the day, especially like when I'm running here in Flag on a trail or something, or especially when I'm in Boston, it's kind of nice to be able to get outside of yourself and just realize, okay, I'm just one little point moving through this huge, vast thing. I like run over the BU bridge and you look out at the whole city and you're running through, you're like, I'm just one little point moving through this vast ecosystem of what the city is. And I think it helps put it into perspective that there's more than just like what's going on inside my head. Yeah. Cause when you're inside your head, you can just get so you can get so deep, right? And there is something about widening your borders in a way that, that allows you to maybe loosen up a little, I find. I feel like sometimes my brain is this bottomless chasm as you just like spiral down with thoughts. And then I go for a run and it's just like, whoop, right back out. What are some of the things in the past that you would have thought of as weaknesses that you've learned to channel in a way that you now see as strengths? Probably the number one with OCD is this like obsessiveness, this drive to like keep running all the time and like doing a lot of stuff and like being able to just channel that in the right way. That is super conducive to marathoning. Finding a way to do it in a healthy way has been the key, I think. But like, especially with the first pro team that I was on, like, I just wanted to run all the time. And I didn't necessarily want to do super hard workouts all the time. I didn't want to have to be doing these crazy ball out track workouts. I'm like, I just really like running. I really like mileage. And I feel like my body responds to it. And my, my old coach was like, no, you have to do it this way because this is the way that you're successful. And I think the thing that I appreciate most about my current coach, John, is he like saw that he's like, okay, like you are super driven to run twice a day, every day. You love it. It keeps your brain calm. Let's make the most of that because like that's perfect for a marathoner. That's perfect for just banging out mileage. The key is making mm. sure that we're not going too hard so that your body can handle that. So it's making sure that I'm doing it in a healthy way, but just inherently like having that drive to be like, okay, I want to run upwards of two to three hours every single day. Yeah. I would think that's probably just the biggest thing. I just legitimately like want to run all the time. <laughs> Molly admits that figuring out how to do this in a healthy way hasn't been easy. She believes that it's important to understand that for as much as running has helped her, it can be a double-edged sword. I think there needs to just be a better appreciation that running can also be the problem. I'm not going to be one of those people to be like, running saved me. Because it's like, running has broken so many bones in my body and running has driven me to the edge. And I realize I'm never going to be fully healthy mentally, probably, or physically until I'm done with my competitive running. I think a lot of people love to look at like, oh, she runs 125 miles a week. She's doing like this incredible thing. And like this level of running isn't necessarily like super healthy for your body. Like we do this at an elite level. 
But for the majority of people, like this is not a super healthy thing to do. It is this hard thing because it's like, I love doing this sport and I want to do it as long as I can. But it also like, it's just constantly like, there's all these triggers for someone who's been through an eating disorder. When you're constantly in that world of like surrounded by people who have tendencies towards that, you see through the bullshit pretty easily with stuff. And it's just realizing like, okay, this is like a subset of the population that like we behave pretty differently than most quote unquote normal people. And it is hard to be constantly triggered like that, constantly Mm -hmm. have body image stuff thrown at you, constantly be like pushing your body to the edge in a way that is always bringing those kinds of things in the forefront of your mind. Yeah. And then as told to for ESPN that you did, I, I pulled this thing out that you wrote because I just thought it encapsulated this so nicely. You wrote, They wanted this marathon in the Olympics to be my new story, the next phase of Molly the Runner. But the reality is much messier. I'll never overcome my eating disorder. I still struggle. I relapse and I actively deal with the ups and downs that come with chronic OCD, depression, and anxiety. It's not something that a nice tidy bow like the Olympic trials or even the Olympics can disguise. And I think that's a really important and brave message to put out there to just be like, this is an ongoing struggle. But I think that dialogue needs to be out there because at least for me, when I was going through like the worst of it, and you see like the quote unquote success stories out there, I think it's obscuring just the difficulty for someone who's going through it. And so like, I try to think of what someone who's going through it right now, who's reading the pat happy bow on it media story about Molly being like, why can't I get through this? Why do I constantly struggle with relapse with this like everyday nagging at the back of my mind, like how an alcoholic would feel of like, it's always there. Why do I feel like that when these other people have been able to do it? This other girl who went through it now made the Olympic team and she's fine. And it's like trying to be very clear of like, that's not what it is. And it's okay to still struggle with that stuff. And I think that dialogue needs to be out there, the like real dialogue because I think that has more of a capacity to help people be like, don't give up. It's okay that it's hard and you're working through it. And it's going to be something you're always going to work through. Don't think there's anything wrong with you because you still struggle with it. Molly says that she's only been able to talk about her own struggles now that she's had the time and distance to really process them. It was really hard. It took time for me to like get over what my college experience was. I think I'd had almost like this too grandiose view in my head of what I was in college. I was like, oh my gosh, you were an NCAA champion. You did all this stuff and then you destroyed yourself with eating disorder stuff. And I had to like have some distance and time from college to process that because like I hated Notre Dame for a while. I hated competitive running for a while and I wanted nothing to do with it. And I had to get to the point where I was like, you know what? You're just a, a runner who's done some stuff and some shit's happened to, and none of that matters anymore. That's in the past. It's your story, but it doesn't change what you're doing now or reflect anything into the future. The hard stuff happens to everybody. It's just how you move forward from it. Don't live the rest of your life being vindictive. That was truly the biggest change going into the trials. The very night before the trials. Molly says she was still struggling to let go of some of the stories and ideas of who she was or who she should be. This is something I still feel like shame about. The night before the trials, there was a meet at BU and I saw Carissa Schweitzer, who I admire enormously. She's the older sister of one of my friends from Notre Dame. And she was in the NCAA like right after me. And I saw Carissa and what she did is the better version of what I was in college. 
she won all these NCAA titles right after I did. And she was able to like be healthy, be strong, went with Bowerman Track Club. And so the night before the trials, I was on my phone about to go to bed. And I saw that Carissa had just broken the American record for the indoor 3K. And I felt like this surge of sadness and envy being like, she's done everything that I wanted out of college that I just never could do because I self-destructed. She she did the thing. She was healthy. She went with the incredible pro team Bowerman right out of school. She's running the American track records. She's doing it in the events that I always thought that I would be doing it. And it was this sense of loss that I felt of like, why does she get this and I don't? Why did I self-destruct and she didn't? I like sat there and then I felt really ashamed. I'm like, why the hell am I not so happy for this girl who just did this incredible thing? That was never meant to be mine. That path, that accomplishment, that was never meant to be my path. What's mine will come. You can't be mad about it. You can't be guilty or envious about it because that was never supposed to be yours. That's Carissa's. And I feel like I just came to terms with it, like literally that night before the trials and just be like, you know what? Yours is going to come. And then the next day I qualified for my first Olympic team after I just let go of that idea that I deserve anything because of who I was. It was just like, nope, that's hers. Yours is going to come. This idea of of Molly the runner, like people I've talked to on this podcast, like when you are competing at an Olympic level, it's very easy for your sport to become your identity because it's so much of what you're doing. I think so many of us fall into this trap of defining ourselves by like the events that we run, the times that we run the accomplishments that we've had. I had this very specific idea in my mind coming out of college of who I was and what the world owed me because I had four NCAA championships. And like, nobody gives a shit. Nobody (laughs) cares about that kind of stuff. The only person who cared was me. I had to let go of that. The only thing that matters is who you are in the moment and how you conduct yourself on a day-to-day kind of thing. And yeah, you can have all the accomplishments you want. I can put Olympian next to my name. Doesn't mean shit. How does that, if at all, affect your approach for the Olympics? Obviously, you're competitive. You want to win. But how do you maintain that lightness going to the Olympics? That's something you and John talk about, work on, or or how do you think about that? I actually approach it with a very similar mentality of how I went into the trials. I just went into it with being like, okay, I'm just going to keep an open mind. You never know what's going to happen. Objectively, this is just like even 10 times up from what the Olympic trials was like. That was the greatest women in the US. This is the greatest woman in the world and the fastest woman over the marathon distance ever. That's crazy. I feel like it is that Desi Linda mentality of just keep showing up. And if you show up with the effort there, maybe it can be a great day. Maybe it won't be, but like all you can do is show up and put out your best effort. This is an incredibly important thing for my life. Running the Olympics has been my dream since I was a kid. This is objectively one of my life goals, but also realizing in the grand scheme of things, it's a pretty like silly thing. I make a living putting one foot in front of the other at a moderately faster pace than most other people. So it's like keeping it in perspective. I'm not performing brain surgery. I'm literally just running. Molly may only be trying to run from here to there faster than someone else, but she's pretty damn good at it. I hope you guys got as much out of hearing a story as I did from seizing opportunity, whether it be her decision to run the Olympic trials or to take a shot at the lead 19 miles in, to embracing discomfort, to her candid thoughts on her own struggles with staying mentally and physically healthy. A huge thank you to Molly for joining us and for sharing. And obviously, we will be rooting for her big time come the marathon on Sunday, August 8th. 
smarter, better, faster, stronger. We'll be back next week, this time with Kyra Condi, who will be competing in the Olympics' first ever climbing competition. Subscribe so you don't miss it, and make sure to rate and review if you haven't already. Thanks to the Seaplane Armada team, Jessamine Molly and Justin Wright, for production, editing, and original music. Thanks to John Wilde, Sam Shuby, Melissa Yang, Peter Lee, and Corinne Furman for their help with production and promotion. And thanks to you guys for listening. If you want to reach out, I'm at clay underscore skipper at gq.com. Please don't hesitate to write me. Till then, I will talk to you next week.